we are going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. It's been a month since we were in there last time. And if you, well, and also last time it was our virtual service, so I didn't get to see any of you when I was preaching to my phone. It was on a stand, and I'm just imagining looking at each and every one of you. So uh, I invite you to turn there, John chapter 4, that's where we'll be. And last month we covered the first 26 verses in which we read of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well just outside, outside the town of Sychar in Samaria. And as you, as you may recall, Jesus and his disciples were passing through Samaria in order to make their way back to Galilee after spending some time in Judea. And they stopped for a rest when they came upon this well outside the town of Sychar. And Jesus sat down beside the well while his disciples went on into the town to buy food. And it was at that time that the Samaritan woman came to the well. Jesus graciously initiated a conversation with this woman. And in the course of that conversation, what we looked at last time, he offered her the gift of eternal life. He revealed to her that he knew all about her sin. And he called her to become a true worshiper of God. And towards the end of the conversation, when the woman attempted to dismiss the claims of Jesus by deferring to the long-awaited Messiah as the one who would have all the answers, Jesus revealed to her that he himself was the Messiah. And this final statement from Jesus is what we ended on last time. Little cliffhanger. I who speak to you am he. Done. We'll pick it up next time. That's where we are now. So that final statement he gave, and it was at this moment that the woman's eyes were open and she believed, which is confirmed by what transpires in the verses that follow. We'll now begin to look at verses 27 to 42. That's our passage for this morning. And in that passage, we have the second half of this account of Jesus' ministry at the well in Samaria. We're going to work our way through it, bit by bit. So here's what resulted from Jesus' conversation with the woman. Starting verse 27, we read in 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So according to Jewish custom at the time, it was considered highly inappropriate for a man to converse with a woman in public. However, Jesus, in his compassion, he was willing to disregard that custom and, and converse with the woman for the sake of her soul. The disciples missed that conversation. They, they'd arrived right at the end of it, only after it had concluded. However, although they were bothered by what they saw, 
They didn't question Jesus about it. And the woman then went back to the town, leaving her water jar behind. She forgot about her errand. She was there to get water. Well, she leaves the jar behind. Whether she had filled it at that point or not, we don't know. However, the small detail that she left her water jar behind shows us that she was eager to get to the town as soon as possible in order to tell the people about Jesus. And she did not want, to, not want to be slowed down by having to carry the water jar back with her. The fact that she left it behind also tells us that she was going to come back. Then in verse 29, we are told what she said to the townspeople. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem like much of a testimony. Her question on the surface makes it seem like she has doubts and does not yet believe, at least in this translation. However, the response of the people that we read here and at the end of the account indicates that her testimony was not one that was imbued with doubt, but one that sprang from faith. Also, if we keep in mind the fact that she was a woman of ill repute, one who had gone through five husbands and was now staying with a man who is not her husband, well, then we can understand why she took the approach she did. One commentator explains it this way. I thought this was helpful. The woman, he says, the woman immediately wanted to give testimony to others of what she had found, but she did it with utmost tact. It would have been unseemly presumptuous and probably ineffective for this woman to attempt to teach the men of the city regarding spiritual truth. Her background hardly qualified her to speak with authority on religious and spiritual matters. Therefore, her statement to them was phrased in a deliberately cautious way so as not to arouse antagonism. And yet, it suggested that they ought to come see Jesus for themselves. The woman invited the townspeople to come and see. And by her question, she implied what they would find. And in response, many people believed her. Many people believed her. And they went to see Jesus for themselves. And if we look ahead at verse 39, we're told that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And by the way, it's a helpful reminder and encouragement for those of you who may be timid when it comes to telling others about Jesus and, and sharing the gospel. Don't be crippled by the thought of not being able to answer every question or objection people may have. You ever thought about that? It's intimidating. You think, what if they ask like a lot of questions that they don't have a ready answer for? But don't let that cripple you. Don't be timid. Tell them what you know. And invite them to come and see Jesus for themselves. How can they do that? Well, you can encourage them to open up the scriptures and read of him. You can invite them to come with you to our church service. 
on Sunday or to a Bible study where they may learn of him. Whatever it may be, speak the truth and leave the results to God. Those whom God has chosen to save will, at the time he has appointed for them, receive the truth concerning Jesus and they will respond in repentance and faith. That's according to God's will and that's in his timing. That's in his control. Who exactly those people are, we don't know. They aren't walking around with an E for elect stamped on their forehead. In addition to that, we don't know the exact time that God has appointed for elect individuals to be given spiritual life and granted the gift of faith so that they believe the gospel. It may be when we proclaim Christ to them, or it may be when someone else does at a later time. But what are we called to do? Share Christ. Speak the truth. Give testimony. Bear witness. And let God work. Leave the results to him. What we do know is that we are commanded by our Lord to proclaim to all nations repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. So let's work off of what we know. We know that as many as are appointed to eternal life will believe. We know that it is the Spirit who gives life and that God will have mercy on whomever he wills and harden whomever he wills. Therefore, we can confidently then, based on what we know there, that gives us confidence to go and tell others what we know and invite them to come and meet Jesus. So be a faithful witness. Be a faithful witness. Leave the results to God. The outcome is entirely in his hands. And in the case of the Samaritan woman's testimony to the residents of Sikar, the result was that many believed and went with her back to the well so they could meet Jesus. The Apostle John then turns our attention back to Jesus and the disciples and tells us what transpired after the woman had left. Verses 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Ah, another teaching moment for the disciples. Remember, and let's be fair, Jesus had stayed behind at the well in order to rest. He was worn out. He's taking a break. He stayed behind at the well in order to rest while the disciples had gone into the town to buy some food. It was the middle of the day. It was hot. And they still had a ways to go on their journey back to Galilee. No doubt they were all hungry. After all, it was lunchtime, middle of the day. The disciples were taking care of a very practical matter. And that's where their focus was. Nothing wrong with that. It's important. But this was not the case with Jesus. It's not what his focus was on. His focus was on doing the will of the Father and accomplishing his work, which 
at this time had been to reach out to the Samaritan woman and to bear witness to the truth and to offer the gift of living water to her thirsty soul, which then opened a door of opportunity for him to minister to the whole town. And giving himself to this greater spiritual work satisfied his soul to such an extent that his physical hunger faded into the background. It's not that he wasn't hungry. Fully man. He, knows, he, he felt the same things we felt. He felt hunger. But yet he was so fixated on the spiritual work that God had given him to do, the Father had given him to do, that that physical hunger wasn't distraction. The disciples were focused on a practical, earthly matter, and it's reasonable to assume that they were not expecting to do any ministry work while in Samaria. Like, hey, we're just taking a break. Just had a lot of work, baptizing a lot of people on this long journey now, just making a pit stop. They're probably not thinking about ministry right now. So Jesus drew their attention to the spiritual work that was at hand. The work that they were about to participate in. He said to them in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So the question that Jesus put forward was likely a reference to the common understanding that according to their agricultural calendar, there was an interval of about four months between the end of seed time and the beginning of the harvest, the first days of the harvest. You have this, this four-month interval. And growing grain, well, that was a process that took considerable time and could not be rushed. Can't rush it. And once all the work of sowing was done, people had to wait months before they could literally start reaping the benefits at the harvest. However, when it comes to the spiritual work of evangelism, there's no necessary interval of time between proclaiming gospel truth to someone and seeing that person truly repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus had just proclaimed the good news concerning himself to the Samaritan woman, who then took off to tell the whole town. The word of Christ had been sown in her, and then it was sown in the townspeople through her, and many believed. And they were all now coming, down, coming out to personally meet Jesus and hear him for themselves. It was this approaching crowd of people that Jesus directed his disciples' attention to and compared to fields of ripened grain ready to be gathered in. Some think maybe they were, had white garments and things and them coming this crowd as the fields are white for harvest. Look at the souls, here they come. Precious souls ready to be harvested. However, when it comes to the spiritual work of evangelism, there's there's no necessary interval of time between proclaiming the gospel truth to someone and seeing that person truly repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There's no necessary interval of time. 
Jesus had just proclaimed that, that good news to the Samaritan, and she told the whole town. And we see this approaching crowd now, the field white for harvest, this spiritual harvest being ready to be gathered in. It is at hand, he says. What's, what's the point he's making? The time for the spiritual harvest is now. We don't need to wait months. It's not a long while for now. It is here. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The spiritual harvest has begun. I think that while Jesus' Jesus's disciples were urging him to eat, he was watching and waiting as the woman hurried back to town and, and anticipating this response from the townspeople. The woman had left her water jar and was coming back. He knew that she had believed his word and he knew what she had gone to do. He knew the spiritual harvest was at hand. And after pointing out that this reality to his disciples, he went on to explain to them the significance of what was happening. Not just specifically what was happening at that moment, but more generally, what was happening during the time of his public ministry and the work he was giving them to do. We see in verses, well, starting in verse 36, we see this in verse 36 through 8. But verse 36, already, he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus made it clear that his ministry was not merely one of sowing. It wasn't merely one of bearing witness to the truth concerning himself and and God's gift of eternal life and salvation from sin and the coming judgment through faith in him. His ministry was also the beginning of the spiritual harvest. Already the reaping had begun. Because he, the eternal son, the true light, the life-giving word, was there to grant forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who believed in him. Reaping had begun. The harvest was here. His ministry would culminate with him going to the cross and making atonement for the sins of his people. And and through his death and burial and resurrection, he would secure their eternal redemption. However, it was at the commencement of Jesus' ministry that the time of the spiritual harvest had begun. And that's why Jesus said, already the one who reaps is receiving wages. In other words, the reaper was employed to work at the present time. He's hired. He's working. He's receiving wages. He's employed to work at the present time because the harvest had arrived. And there were souls ready to be made citizens of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, the king himself. They were the fruit or the crop that needed to be gathered. The Father would draw them, the Spirit would quicken them, and the Son would receive them so that they could be gathered for eternal life. During this spiritual harvest time, while the work of reaping was underway, the work of sowing would also continue. There's still sowing going on. So that the crop gathered for eternal life would become greater and greater and greater. Therefore, those who sow and those who reap are able to rejoice together in the Lord's work. 
They're, they're working at the same time and rejoicing at the same time. Both sowing and reaping are happening. The one who sows may not necessarily see the conversion of the individuals that he or she has witnessed to. But the, that sower can still see the Lord's work in the true conversion of others and rejoice in the reaping for eternal life that is being done, all for the glory of God in Christ. And that continues to be the case even to today, as the time of the Lord's harvest continues. Think about it. At the commencement of Jesus' public ministry, the harvest began because the king was there and he was beginning to grant forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who believed in him. His ministry culminated in the cross, right? But even from that time, you know, through his death, burial, resurrection, he secured eternal redemption. And we have the beginning of the church, but the, the proclamation continues. And there still is the harvesting. He's building his church. Generation after generation, people are coming to faith in Christ and being reaped for eternal life. We're still in the time of the Lord's harvest. God uses some to sow the seed of gospel truth in the heart of unbelievers whom he has chosen for salvation. And he uses others to bear witness to the truth once more and gather them in at the time of conversion. Jesus then explained to his disciples the role they had entered into and had been participating in at this point. Verse 37 and 38. He says, For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, regarding what is said here, one commentator provides a, the following explanation, which I found to be very helpful. He says, Jesus sent his disciples to reap what they have not worked for. Jesus is now talking in more general terms about the purpose of their calling. Here, they are told that their fruitfulness is possible because of the work of others before them. Granted the fact that John the Baptist had recently ministered in this area, it is hard to resist the conclusion that Jesus is insisting John is the last in the succession of prophets and of others who sowed the seed but did not live long enough to participate in the harvest. Jesus and his followers arrive at that moment in redemptive history when the eschatological harvest begins. Whatever the precise reference no Christian harvester can ever justly forget that success in reaping normally depends on the work of those who have gone before. So when it comes to gospel proclamation and the ministry of making disciples of Jesus Christ, here's what we need to remember. The Lord has called us to equip or uh, he's called us and equipped us not to start something altogether new we're not called to be entrepreneurs in spiritual in, in ministry he's not calling us to something new he's called and equipped us to continue in the labor of his faithful servants who have preceded us so let's think about this Summit Bible Church is coming up on being 10 years old in three months. 
This is, let's say, a lean and tenacious local church fellowship. However, we would not be coming up on our 10th year of gospel ministry if it weren't for the labor of our members along the way. Right? And this local church, this light for the gospel, would not even exist if it weren't for the faithful work of the six families who set out together into the great unknown and spent over six months establishing a gospel-preaching, Bible-teaching, Christ-exalting presence in North Fontana so that a new church could be planted there. And this core team, that core team, would not have been assembled and sent out if it weren't for the vision and preliminary labor and faithful support of Foothill Bible Church in Upland. You see? Now we could go, we could go further back. Go on back into history, right? We could go further back if I did the research, which I did not. That's where it ends. But you get the point, right? We're seeing it. We've entered into the labor of those who have gone before us. And all of it, all of it is the Lord's work. Right? Not for us to boast, right? We boast in him what he's doing through his people. Was there sin and trouble along the way? Were there failures and disappointments along the way? Yes. Yes. Praise God. I think I'm feeling emotions right now. This is new for me. Usually my wife feels them all for me. It's like my proxy. But her hands are tied with our rambunctious son, so maybe I'm feeling emotions right now. Bumpy right along the way because of sin. Sorry, guys, I don't know what's happening. But I want you to hear this. I'm just going to read it so that whatever has happened to me now doesn't blow it. If I can see through this water. What's wrong with your eyes? All right. Praise God that we're standing in grace and clothed, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and are not judged according to our personal performance, but are taking refuge in the perfect merit of our mediator who died for our sins and rose again and <clears throat> intercedes for us and will keep us to the end and bring us to glory. 
And you know what's great? We'll all be rejoicing together in the end. Thanks to his unfailing love. So, in the meantime, let's press on together in gospel ministry. This year has been very turbulent so far, to say the least. But all the disruptive events and trying circumstances we have been experiencing have been ordained by God. Therefore, we ought to lean into the trials while fixing our eyes on Christ so that this testing of our faith might produce in us steadfastness. The Lord has called us to labor together, not on our own. So let's stay the course. Even though it's difficult because of our sin, and the sin of others, and the schemes of the devil in this fallen world, it is nonetheless a blessed, sanctifying, soul-satisfying work because it is the Lord's work given to us. So for each of you individually, wherever the Lord has placed you, wherever he's placed you, and wherever he may end up directing your steps, keep serving him. Keep living for him who died for your sake and was raised. We are still in the time of the spiritual harvest. So let's be faithful workers in his service, wherever he has us, in whatever capacity he has us serving, wherever he might be directing our steps. You are his, and he has called you to labor. No matter what. Finally, we come to the last part of John's account of what transpired at the well outside the town of Sychar in Samaria. Hey, happy ending. 39 to 42. Verses 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And some of you are thinking, wow, is evangelism that easy? So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. How gracious. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now many of the townspeople believed the woman's testimony concerning Jesus, that he, he must be the prophet like Moses, whom God had promised to raise up and for whom they had been waiting. He is the one whom the Jews referred to as the Messiah or the Christ. The promise of a prophet like Moses is a messianic prophecy. 
The townspeople who believed the woman's testimony wanted to go see Jesus for themselves. And by the way, such an immediate receptiveness to the woman's testimony may have been due to the ministry of John the Baptist, who had ministered nearby not too long before. Remember, John the Baptist was the first prophet Israel had seen in over 400 years. And he testified that the one who was mightier and infinitely more worthy was coming after him. He was the forerunner. If the Samaritans in the town of Sychar caught wind of that, then it may be that they began to think that the arrival of the prophet like Moses could really be at hand. And then, with such heightened awareness, one of the local women, who usually avoids others because of her shameful reputation, comes bursting into town saying, there's a man who supernaturally knows everything about her, and implying that he is the Christ. What? Perhaps that explains why so many people who heard her believed right away. Now, even though they were unorthodox and worshipped in ignorance as Samaritans, they viewed the books of Moses as divine scripture. They believed God's promise through Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You shall listen. So what did the townspeople do? What did they do? They went out to invite Jesus to stay with them so they could listen to him. And after two days, many more in the town believed because of his word. No miracles, right? His word. And they believed. After hearing him speak, even those who first believed through the woman's testimony said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. One commentator points this out. Personal testimony plus the message of Jesus is still God's means of salvation. Faith based simply on the testimony of another is only secondary. True faith moves to its own experience and confrontation with Jesus. Its own experience. and con- You need to see him for yourself. You need to behold him for yourself. You, you might be told of him, but then you need to seek him for yourself. The Samaritans who believe called him the savior of the world. Why? Well, after two days of listening, they came to understand that Jesus had come to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to Samaritans and Gentiles as well, and thus to the whole world. He's the Savior of the world. He's the the only Savior. What a wonderful glimpse of the harvest for heaven. The harvest that is still continuing even to this day. So, let's give ourselves to the Lord's work. And rejoice in what he has done through the labor of those who have gone on before us and those who will follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
your word this morning, to be able to set our minds on things above, to, to set our minds on your coming kingdom and the glories of Christ and the, the glorious salvation you have provided for us in him. Lord Jesus, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to be laboring as your servants in your work, the work you've called us to. Help us to be faithful wherever you have us, wherever you have us. And in our, our local church, help us to be united in this great work of making you known. You have to offer to sinners, you have eternal life to give. You have forgiveness of sins and eternal life to give to those who repent and believe in you. May we, may we proclaim the gospel to the lost. And may we build our, each other up in the glorious truths of the gospel so that we never forget that we are standing in grace, that we're recipients of your mercy, that we have the hope of heaven, no matter what, because you won't treat us according to our sins, but according to your righteousness, which has been credited to us, imputed to us. We are clothed by your righteousness. May we rejoice in that grace, that, that good news, the gospel, and keep pressing on in your work and find our rest and refuge in you here and now and not lose sight of the glorious end you have appointed for us, your coming kingdom, everlasting peace. We rejoice in that. We ask your blessing on our, our week and on the weeks ahead with all that's going on. Help us to be patient, to rest in your care and your guidance. Direct our steps, give us wisdom. Help us to continue pressing on in, in faith, hope, and love. It's in your name we pray, amen.